Well, good morning. Happy Monday. Hope you had a great 4th of July Independence Day weekend and you still have all of your 10 fingers left if you were setting off fireworks. This is your substitute teacher again, Glenn Biddle, sitting in for Double J and Eric as they are still sidelined, but hopefully they'll be back soon. Now, that's great for us because we can continue on moving on not great that they're sick but great that we can move on uh we have a deep bench and we can adapt and move forward today's show's topic is economics 101 we're going to start off with fractional reserve banking just what it is and we're going to go on from there okay the federal reserve has really uh increased its presence during this pandemic time as both the lender and the buyer of last resort now, how it pays for all of this stuff is lost on most people, not this audience. Obviously, you guys are squared away and know that stuff. But I thought we should revisit it again and kind of take a look at what fractional reserve banking is, what, what is CPI, the Consumer Price Index, what's inflation, uh, what's supply and demand, uh, the, the, federal, the FDIC, all these different things because they really are – the federal government now is, has such a ominous role, a presence in the economy – especially the Fed, that they're the elephant in the room. We have to understand what's going on because if we don't, I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be overtaken by it. I mean, the debt's already overtaking us all, but we definitely have to get on that. And it's done in your name. It is done in your name. No one calls you and asks you if uh, we want to up the national debt another $2 trillion, $4 trillion, $8 trillion, $10 trillion. No one calls you up and asks you that. It's just done. It's done. You have, you have no say in it, even, even when you vote. You know, do you really have a say in it? Because all these politicians, when they get up there, there's maybe 10 people that vote against it. They all vote for it because there's really no other choice. You know, They almost have to do it because the alternative is political suicide. The third rail, as they say in, in politics. So uh, I think we got through a, a crazy weekend with pretty much unscathed. Now, in, in, in regular America, I'll say that much at least. If you're in a blue city, chances are, there's bullets flying everywhere, statues getting knocked over, rioting. What a mess. Okay, I think there's over 162 shootings in the United States over this weekend. Okay, Lots of fatalities. Uh, New York crime rates off the charts. Chicago off the charts. Baltimore off the charts. You name your blue city, it's off the charts. Why is that happening? Well, the mob is in control. And the, the Democrats that are in control of these cities either don't care or they don't want to go after their voting block because basically that's what it is. If they do get arrested, the charges are all dropped pretty much if it's if it's done locally. Federally now, though, I think they're starting to lock up some of these Antifa people and, and they're facing some serious time, maybe 10 years at the minimum, and going on from there. In Portland, okay, folks, this is how stupid that this is getting. In Portland last week, okay, an iconic 120-year-old Portland elk statue was removed after set fire during the protest. Now, what possibly could an elk statue have to do with with race relations? I don't get this, okay? Uh, a 120-year-old statue of an elk has been removed from downtown Portland. Well, okay, it's Portland. After protesters lit a fire underneath of it Wednesday night. Were they hungry? Were they trying to cook a, a statue of an elk? I mean, that's how dumb these people are. The statue, which sits atop the David T. Thompson Fountain, had been the target of graffiti and fires during the weeks of protests against systematic racism, police brutality, and the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. The elk and fountain were donated to the city by one-time Mayor David P. Thompson in 1900 to honor an elk that once roamed the Willamette Valley. All right, 100 years ago, an elk, and they're paying tribute to this elk, and these idiots go 
mess up the elk. This is this is how stupid all this is getting, folks. And no one's stopping it. No one's stopping it. Okay. Now, did you see the uh, the speech President Trump gave at um, at uh, over the weekend? It was incredible, right? The flyovers of the planes. You know, it, it was just awesome. Okay. Um, now, the problem is there are people saying that Mount Rushmore now is racist and is white supremacist, and it, it's it's you know it took the Indians' land away to make this that statue. This is terrible. It has to be removed. What is sacred in America anymore, folks? This is this is ridiculous. Okay, that was a wholesome American, nice way to celebrate the Independence Day weekend, and people have to find fault with it. I just don't get it. Okay, it's, it's absolutely a mess. Uh, Columbus statues were taken down. One in Baltimore, right in front of the police. Okay, they did nothing. It was knocked down and dragged to the inner harbor of Baltimore and thrown into the water. Uh, there was another Columbus statue that was decapitated. Um, obviously, the indigenous people are upset about this. It's just the 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 I mad du jour uh, attack on what is sacred and what is once our history in this country is just being destroyed. It's a mess. Now, in some economic news, Nike has lost seven hundred ninety million dollars last quarter. Wow, was that woke capitalism or was that uh, just Nike? being dumb and, and maybe supporting some people who probably shouldn't support, like maybe taking the Betsy Ross flag off of some sneakers last year. This was the same time frame last year. Nike has made its bed, and they're going to have to deal with this. Now, the, who's going to pay the price? Well, they're workers in their stores. That's who's going to pay the price because at this point, that's where they're going to go after it. They're, they're going to do some restructuring. They're going to try to uh, direct their sales into more profitable parts of the company, you know, Dick Sporting Goods did the same crap when the when the uh, gun issue happened. They said, "Well, we're going to get rid of black rifles, the AR-15s, out of our stores. We're going to take 150 different product lines off that glorify uh, AR-15s and, and ammunition and all that stuff." Well, guess what? They had a 25% loss last year. 25%. So I I hope that uh, they think they're going to survive off of off of their other maybe their golf sales, but. They lost a huge portion of their sales when gun owners said, nope, sorry, we're not going to shop anymore at exporting goods. That's what woke capitalism gets you, ladies and gentlemen. When we get back, Fractional Reserve Banking got a great clip about that. Stay tuned. You might learn something. And welcome back to the Patriot Radio News Hour on a Monday. This is your substitute teacher, Glenn Biddle, sitting in for Double J and Eric. Uh, the website is up, allamericangold.com. We're coming to you live from 1010 KXXT, Family Values Radio in Arizona, and also 1360 KHNC in the heart of northern Colorado. And we're rocking and firing on all those frequencies and the Internet. Uh, we want to start off with fractional reserve banking. We have a clip about just exactly how it works and the, the hidden costs of it, which is our inflation and debt. And, uh, Jason, if, without further ado, if you go ahead and play that clip. A number of years ago, the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, produced a document entitled Modern Money Mechanics. This publication detailed the institutionalized practice of money creation as utilized by the Federal Reserve and the web of global commercial banks it supports. On the opening page, the document states its objective. The purpose of this booklet is to describe the basic process of money creation in a fractional reserve banking system. It then proceeds to describe this fractional reserve process through various banking terminology, a translation of which 
goes something like this. The United States government decides it needs some money, so it calls up the Federal Reserve and requests, say, $10 billion. The Fed replies, saying, sure, we'll buy $10 billion in government bonds from you. So the government takes some pieces of paper, paints some official-looking designs on them, and calls them treasury bonds. Then it puts a value on these bonds to the sum of $10 billion and sends them over to the Fed. In turn, the people at the Fed draw up a bunch of impressive pieces of paper themselves, only this time calling them Federal Reserve Notes, also designating a value of $10 billion to the set. The Fed then takes these notes and trades them for the bonds. Once this exchange is complete, the government then takes the $10 billion in Federal Reserve Notes and deposits it into a bank account. And upon this deposit, the paper notes officially become legal tender money, adding $10 billion to the U.S. money supply. And there it is. $10 billion in new money has been created. Of course, this example is a generalization, for, in reality, this transaction would occur electronically, with no paper used at all. In fact, only 3% of the U.S. money supply exists in physical currency. The other 97% essentially exists in computers alone. Now, government bonds are, by design, instruments of debt. And when the Fed purchases these bonds, with money it essentially created out of thin air, the government is actually promising to pay back that money to the Fed. In other words, the money was created out of debt. This mind-numbing paradox of how money or value can be created out of debt or a liability will become more clear as we further this exercise. So, the exchange has been made and now $10 billion sits in a commercial bank account. Here's where it gets really interesting. For as based on the fractional reserve practice, that $10 billion deposit instantly becomes part of the bank's reserves, just as all deposits do. And regarding reserve requirements, as stated in Modern Money Mechanics, a bank must maintain legally required reserves equal to a prescribed percentage of its deposits. It then quantifies this by stating, under current regulations, the reserve requirement against most transaction accounts is 10%. This means that with a $10 billion deposit, 10% or $1 billion is held as the required reserve while the other $9 billion is considered an excessive reserve and can be used as the basis for new loans. Now, it is logical to assume that this $9 billion is literally coming out of the existing $10 billion deposit. However, this is actually not the case. What really happens is that the $9 billion is simply created out of thin air on top of the existing $10 billion deposit. This is how the money supply is expanded. As stated in Modern Money Mechanics, of course they, the banks, do not really pay out loans from the money they receive as deposits. If they did this, no additional money would be created. What they do when they make loans is to accept promissory notes, loan contracts, in exchange for credits, money, to the borrower's transaction accounts. In other words, the $9 billion can be created out of nothing simply because there is a demand for such a loan and that there is a $10 billion deposit to satisfy the reserve requirements. Now, let's assume that somebody walks into this bank and borrows the newly available $9 billion. They will then most likely take that money and deposit it into their own bank account. The process then repeats, for that deposit becomes part of the bank's reserves. 
10% is isolated, and in turn 90% of the 9 billion, or 8.1 billion, is now available as newly created money for more loans. And, of course, that 8.1 can be loaned out and redeposited, creating an additional 7.2 billion to 6.5 billion to 5.9 billion, etc. This deposit money creation loan cycle can technically go on to infinity. The average mathematical result is that about 90 billion dollars can be created on top of the original 10 billion. In other words, for every deposit that ever occurs in the banking system, about nine times that amount can be created out of thin air. Money jitters, ask the obliging Bank of America for a jar of soothing instant money, M-O-N-E-Y, in the form of a convenient personal loan. So, now that we understand how money is created by this fractional reserve banking system, a logical yet elusive question might come to mind. What is actually giving this newly created money value? The answer? The money that already exists. The new money essentially steals value from the existing money supply. For the total pool of money is being increased irrespective to demand for goods and services. And as supply and demand finds equilibrium, prices rise, diminishing the purchasing power of each individual dollar. This is generally referred to as inflation and inflation is essentially a hidden tax on the public. What is the advice that you generally get? And that is, inflate the currency. They don't say debase the currency. They don't say devalue the currency. They don't say cheat the people who are saved. They say lower the interest rates. The real deception is when we distort the value of money. When we create money out of thin air, we have no savings, and yet there's so-called capital. So my question boils down to this. How in the world can we expect to solve the problems of inflation, that is, the increase in the supply of money, with more inflation? Of course, it can't. The fractional reserve system of monetary expansion is inherently inflationary. For the act of expanding the money supply, without there being a proportional expansion of goods and services in the economy, will always debase a currency. In fact, a quick glance at the historical values of the U.S. dollar versus the money supply reflects this point definitively, for the inverse relationship is obvious. One dollar in 1913 required $21.60 in 2007 to match value. That is a 96% devaluation since the Federal Reserve came into existence. Now, if this reality of inherent and perpetual inflation seems absurd and economically self-defeating. Hold that thought, for absurdity is an understatement in regard to how our financial system really operates. For in our financial system, money is debt. And debt is money. Here is a chart of the U.S. money supply from 1950 to 2006. Here is a chart of the U.S. national debt for the same period. How interesting it is that the trends are virtually the same. For the more money there is, the more debt there is. The more debt there is, the more money there is. To put it a different way, every single dollar in your wallet is owed to somebody by somebody. For remember, the only way the money can come into existence is from loans. Therefore, if everyone in the country were able to pay off all debts, including the government, 
there would not be one dollar in circulation. In fact, the last time in American history the national debt was completely paid off was in 1835 after President Andrew Jackson shut down the central bank that preceded the Federal Reserve. In fact, Jackson's entire political platform essentially revolved around his commitment to shut down the central bank, stating at one point, the bold efforts the present bank has made to control the government are but premonitions of the fate that awaits the American people should they be deluded into a perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it. Unfortunately, his message was short-lived, and the international bankers succeeded to install another central bank in 1913, the Federal Reserve. And as long as this institution exists, perpetual debt is guaranteed. Now, so far we have discussed the reality that money is created out of debt, through loans. These loans are based on a bank's reserves, and reserves are derived from deposits. And through this fractional reserve system, any one deposit can create nine times its original value, in turn debasing the existing money supply, raising prices in society. And since all this money is created out of debt and circulated randomly through commerce, people become detached from their original debt and a disequilibrium exists where people are forced to compete for labor in order to pull enough money out of the money supply to cover their costs of living. As dysfunctional and backwards as all of this might seem, there is still one thing we have omitted from this equation. And it is this element of the structure which reveals the truly fraudulent nature of the system itself. The application of interest. When the government borrows money from the Fed, or when a person borrows money from a bank, it almost always has to be paid back with accrued interest. In other words, almost every single dollar that exists must be eventually returned to a bank with interest paid as well. But, if all money is borrowed from the central bank and is expanded by commercial banks through loans, only what would be referred to as the principal is being created in the money supply. So then, where is the money to cover all of the interest that is charged? Nowhere. It doesn't exist. The ramifications of this are staggering, for the amount of money owed back to the banks will always exceed the amount of money that is available in circulation. This is why inflation is a constant in the economy, for new money is always needed to help cover the perpetual deficit built into the system, caused by the need to pay the interest. What this also means is that mathematically, defaults and bankruptcy are literally built into the system and there will always be poor pockets of society that get the short end of the stick. An analogy would be a game of musical chairs, for once the music stops, somebody is left out to dry. And that's the point. It invariably transfers true wealth from the individual to the banks. For if you are unable to pay for your mortgage, they will take your property. This is particularly enraging when you realize that not only is such a default inevitable due to the fractional reserve practice, but also because of the fact that the money that the bank loaned to you didn't even legally exist in the first place.
All right, that is a great clip. And I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, the big thing here is inflation. Now, what actually is inflation? Well, it's a general increase in prices and fall in purchasing value or purchasing power of money. And they just gave a great example of that. All right, And here's the easy definition. It's too many dollars chasing too few goods. Okay, So right now, we are awash in money in this country. A lot of people are just saving it. And the, and the government hates this. They want you to go out and spend it. There's a shortage of coins right now because no one's spending their money. And, and, and so that once again, they're like, oh, we got to get rid of cash because everybody's hoarding it. We need some other way, right? Now, how do you fight inflation? Well, it's a very simple thing to do, but it also hurts the economy when you try to fight the inflation. You can raise interest rates, which will slow down the economy, or you can raise taxes, which will also slow down the economy, and hopefully stop inflation. But here's the big but. That slows down the economy. And can we let that happen right now when the economy is in the tank? All right. We'll talk more about this when we come back. Halftime on a Monday. Fractional Reserve Banking. I know everybody's shaking their head right now in the audience. Like, how did we get to this point? Well, we got there because in 1913, a bunch of crazy guys that wanted to protect themselves. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. After three and a half years of President Trump, you would think the mainstream media would have gotten the hint that America is tired of the mainstream media's lies and hypocrisy. Yet it seems they've only doubled down on hate in light of COVID-19. During a press conference in the Rose Garden, CNN reporter Caitlin Collins grilled President Trump for not wearing a mask to that meeting. He rightly responded by pointing out that of the people on the platform with him, we've all been tested and we're quite a distance away and we're outdoors. Trump's reasons seemed good enough for me, but Collins wasn't satisfied. She made it her personal mission to keep track of who in the Trump administration wears a mask in public and who doesn't. Fast forward to another press conference with White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany later that same day. Despite the fact that this press conference was indoors in the tiny press briefing room, that same reporter, Caitlin Collins, was caught ripping her mask off moments after the briefing ended. She mistakenly thought the cameras weren't rolling anymore. You can't make this kind of hypocrisy up, can you? Clearly, CNN reporters like Collins think masks were made to bash the president, not to prevent the spread of sickness. There's a reason President Trump calls the fake news media the enemy of the people. Folks should feel free to wear masks if they want. But when reporters like Collins disingenuously raise hype about masks, it has a directly negative effect on the American people. Millions who rely on CNN for the facts are left thinking they're in grave danger if they don't wear a mask in public even though the CNN reporters don't actually believe it. This fear-mongering prolongs the economic devastation of the virus, which means more small businesses going under and more jobs lost. President Trump is right. These radicals are the enemy of we the people. And they're not pro-America. They do not want to see our nation succeed. And they'll stop at nothing to stop President Trump, even if they have to drag the rest of the nation down with them. It's time for each and every American to reject fake news once and for all. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. The hypocrisy and lies of the liberal media are alarming and even incite public unrest. 
But the fake news and the commentators whose slant coverage are finally being exposed. At phyllisschlafly.com, we promise to provide timely alerts and take effective action on your behalf. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Yes, ma'am, by God be darned. And welcome back to the Patriot Radio News Hour on a Monday. Uh, so we're available for gold and silver sales at allamericangold.com. And just go on the website and take a look, find what you want, click around, you get what you want. Okay, allamericangold.com. We're still up and running there for gold and silver sales. That's good to go. Uh, well, we we played a clip about fractional reserve banking and how money is essentially made out of created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. Uh, the same way that all these bailouts and the injection of money into our system right now, the payroll protection plan, all the all the money that's being created right now to fix the pandemic, all that's being made out of thin air. But who has to pay for it? You do. I do. We all do. Okay, it's it's all interest that's going to have to be paid back on a loan that is put into our name, and no one asked us about it. Okay, the Federal Reserve, the lender of last resort, and the buyer of last resort—they're buying up all these different things to to shore up the economy. And Jay Powell has pretty much said we'll do whatever we have to do to fix it. And it's all done in your name once again. All right, so how do we fix inflation? I gave you the definition of inflation. The easy way to think of it is too many dollars chasing too few goods. You fight inflation two ways. You can raise taxes or you can raise interest rates. Both of them, though, are going to slow down the economy, and that will will tame inflation. It should in a normal economy, okay? But we are not in a normal economy. So if you have runaway inflation, hyperinflation, let's say, to do it will kill the economy or hurt the economy even worse. Okay, uh, so if things become now, let's say you you raise interest rates. Now the cost of buying a car, buying a house, buying any big ticket item now that you have to buy on credit becomes more expensive. And if you are not receiving any more money in your paycheck, or you lost your job because of the pandemic or something, you don't have that kind of money, so you're not buying. Now this has a ripple effect on the economy where people start to get laid off. We already have people laid off, but now everybody that went back to work now. There's no demand. The law, the lack of demand is causing people to get laid off again because everything's so expensive to buy. The big ticket items, the cars, the washing machines, the houses, all these big ticket items are going to go are not going to be bought. And then those people get laid off. Well, all the suppliers that supply all the pieces that go into making those things, they're going to start to get laid off. So it gets, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, it's like that shampoo commercial back in the seventies. You know, you tell two friends, and you tell two friends, and so on and so on and so on, and it's just a ripple effect of what happens. So it's a mess. Okay, or you can raise taxes. Now, once again, you can't. As they say you can't get blood out of a tournament. What turnip? What if people don't have the money to pay their taxes? Well, if you don't pay your your real estate tax, the government takes your house. They talked about that. Uh, if you don't pay your loan back. The bank's going to come after your house. Okay, so now you're a debt slave. You're a debt slave trying to pay back this debt. You have all these taxes. Now, I would be fine with paying more taxes if the government actually did something great with it, like, hey, let's pay off the debt with it. How about that? Or don't, you know, you don't need to borrow as much, but that never happens. They always spend the money. They always spend it. They spend it and they spend more. And then you know, they spend more after that. Okay, so they just won't stop spending. And because they keep promising, watch a State of the Union address. All they do is talk about all this program, that program. We need this program. We need that. I mean, that's that's spending. You don't hear people talking much about cutting spending. You, they may pay lip service to it, but there's never any offsets to new spending by cutting something. It just doesn't work. So now how do you figure out 
what the inflation rate is. Well, you have the consumer price index. Now, this one is this. A lot of people just don't know what exactly the consumer price index is and what it covers. Okay, so the consumer price index represents all goods and services purchased for consumption by the reference population. Okay, consumer price index for all urban consumers or consumer price index for urban wage earners and clerical workers. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has classified all expenditure items into more than 200 categories arranged into eight major groups. Major groups and, and examples or categories are as follows. You have food and beverages, housing. That consists of rent of primary residence, owner's equivalent rent, fuel oil, bedroom furniture, etc. Apparel, transportation, that includes new vehicles, airline fares, gasoline, motor vehicle insurance, medical care, prescription drugs, medical supplies, physician services, eyeglasses, eye care, hospital services, recreation, which includes televisions, cable television, pets, pet products, sports equipment, admissions, education and communication, that's college tuition, postage, telephone services, computer software and accessories, and then other goods and services, that's a large category. Also included within these three major, these major groups are various government charge user fees such as water and sewage charges, auto registration fees and vehicle tolls. The CPI also includes taxes such as sales and excise taxes that are directly associated with the prices of specific goods and services. However, the CPI excludes taxes such as income and Social Security taxes not directly associated with the purchase of consumer goods and services. The CPI does not include investment items such as stocks, bonds, real estate, and life insurance. These items relate to savings and not day-to-day consumption expenses. Expenses, rather. Okay. Now, a lot of times when you look at it at a Wall Street, um, sort of, well, some sort of Wall Street. In, um, article about CPI, what they take out of it sometimes. They take out uh, food and transportation to get what's called core inflation, okay? Because the food and transportation have some of the highest sways of, of uh, costs in there, so that sometimes that skews a number higher. So if you want to get the core inflation, they take out that. It does include food and transportation. A lot of people don't realize that, but it does include it in the overall CPI. Now, the Fed looks at CPI, and that's how along with a lot of other things, other factors, they determine whether they're going to raise or lower interest rates. Okay, that goes, and now if they see a, a rise in inflation, what the, the way to stop it is to raise interest rates. But, th- I mean, they have to be very, very careful about that because if you raise interest rates too high, that's going to shut down the economy, which has all the other disastrous effects, which I just mentioned. So that, that can be a big problem. So there's so many things that the Federal Reserve has its hand into now. And we talked about uh, at the break, I was talking about how did the Federal Reserve get started? Well, it started with a bunch of bankers that kind of formed a cartel. Now, when you say the word cartel, that has a negative connotation to it. But these bankers wanted to keep, they were worried about uh, competition from other banks as the country was moving west. And so they wanted to shore up their pie because there were a lot of bank failures and bank failures aren't good for the banking industry. And they wanted to make sure that all this was taken care of. So it was created down at Jekyll Island. So if you ever get the chance to read the book or listen to the book on tape, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Everett Griffin, it is a, it's a must read. You have to, have to read that book. Or listen, I listen to it. I've been listening to it on tape as I walk in the morning. It is incredible. And it goes into very good detail on bailouts and how the FDIC, the fractional reserve banking, it goes into all this stuff. And it just shows you how that, how how all this was created, and it was all created under a ruse. All these men that went down to Jekyll Island went down there, and they wouldn't use last names. the The staff at Jekyll Island was removed. 
so and and temporary staff was brought in so that nobody would know who these people were because if this was done probably under just as much secrecy as planning for a war and it technically is a war because it's a war against competition the banks wanted to make sure that they stayed solvent and that they stayed strong by eliminating weak banks or pulling them all together so that that they they could have less uh, bank failures and and what a mess absolute what a mess the the federal reserve as as that the clip said we have lost 96 percent of the value of the dollar since the fed was created that's our money that we have to go out and use every day devalued by two percent a year we'll be right back ladies and gentlemen more on supply and demand when we come back patriot radio news hour on a monday stay tuned and welcome back to the Patriot Radio News Hour. This is your substitute teacher, Glenn Biddle, sitting in today for Double J and Eric. We're talking about fractional reserve banking. We're talking about inflation. We're talking about all these negative things that are happening. Let's let's talk about something positive, okay? I'm a school teacher, right? And every morning we do the Pledge of Allegiance. And I wish I had the time every day that I could do this Pledge of Allegiance. Can you go ahead and play that clip, please? I remember a teacher that I had. Now, I only, I went, I went through the seventh grade. I went to the seventh grade. I left home when I was 10 years old because I was hungry. I used to, this this is true. I work in the summer and I go to school in the winter. But I had this one teacher. He was the principal of the Harrison School in Vincennes, Indiana. To me, this was the greatest teacher, a real sage of, of my time, anyhow. He had such wisdom. And we were all reciting the Pledge of Allegiance one day. And he walked over, this little old teacher. Mr. Laswell was his name. Mr. Laswell, he says, uh, <clears throat> he says, I've been listening to you boys and girls recite the Pledge of Allegiance all semester, and it seems as though it's becoming monotonous to you. If I may, may I recite it and try to explain to you the meaning of each word? I. Me, an individual, a committee of one, pledge, dedicate all of my worldly goods to give without self-pity, allegiance, my love and my devotion to the flag, our standard, O glory, a symbol of freedom. Wherever she waves, there's respect because your loyalty has given her a dignity that shouts freedom is everybody's job. United. That means that we have all come together. States. Individual communities that have united into 48 great states. 48 individual communities with pride and dignity and purpose all divided with imaginary boundaries, yet united to a common purpose, and that's love for country. And to the republic, republic, a state in which sovereign power is invested in representatives chosen by the people to govern. And government is the people, and it's from the people to the leaders, not from the leaders to the people for which it stands. One nation, one nation, meaning so blessed by God, indivisible, incapable of being divided with liberty, which is freedom 
the right of power to live one's own life without threats, fear, or some sort of retaliation. And justice, the principle or qualities of dealing fairly with others. For all. For all. Which means, boys and girls, it's as much your country as it is mine. And now, boys and girls, let me hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country and two words have been added to the Pledge of Allegiance under God. Wouldn't it be a pity if someone said that is a prayer and that would be eliminated from schools too? All right, that was uh, Red Skelton. That's a great clip. Uh, you can find that on YouTube. Just type in Red Skelton, Pledge of Allegiance. Awesome. Uh, I think every we should play that every day in schools. It would be awesome for, for the kids to hear that, uh, although I'm sure in some school systems they would they would not allow it. Uh, probably we should just blare this over microphones and, and, uh, and the Antifa protests. It would drive them nuts. They would run away if they heard that. I mean, that would be the best way to break up these protests is to play that uh so we're getting back into supply and demand now adam smith wrote in wealth of nations about the invisible hand of the marketplace an unencumbered marketplace this is where government stays out of the marketplace well we know that doesn't happen but when i teach economics to either way it doesn't matter if it's eighth graders or high school kids i always ask them which is more important supply or demand and i'll just let that hang out there for a while you know like all right raise your hand how many people think supply how many people raised things demand how many have no idea well the no ideas that's usually the many hands that come up and if you did this to most americans the i have no idea hands would go up too uh what do you think i think it's demand because without demand there's no reason to have supply there's always going to be supply out there there's always going to be markers and cars and this that and the other but there's no reason to make any of it if there's not demand for that product okay so where supply meets demand that's called equilibrium Okay, a very easy example of this is when you have a willing buyer and a willing seller and they agree on a price and the transaction is made. A great example is a Kit Kat bar at Walmart. You go into Walmart and Kit Kats are 35 cents. Hey, 35 cents, I'm, I'm buying. I'm in at 35 cents for Kit Kat. And then you're, you know, every week you go in, you buy it, and then they start raising it. And it's 50 cents. I'll still pay 50 cents. So supply still meets demand. We have equilibrium. You go in the next week, it jumped up to 75 cents. Oh, now I'm thinking twice about, ah, do I really want to pay 75 cents for that? For that Kit Kat bar, it's costing me more money now. That's inflation, and, and it's the same Kit Kat bar. It's not any bigger. It's not any better. It's seventy-five more cents. My my salary hasn't gone up, you know, seventy-five cents. So that, so I, you know, proportionally, that cost me more. I think I'm going to hold off. I'll, maybe I'll buy it this week, but I'm not buying it next week. Okay, and then that is when people, when it costs get too high, people stop buying, and then they have to lower the prices back down to get you back in to meet equilibrium. Okay, so when supply meets demand, that's equilibrium. <laughs> 
We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Final segment coming up, Patriot Radio News Hour. Be right back. And welcome back to the Patriot Radio News Hour. Final segment on a Monday. Looking at the markets, Dow Jones is exploding up 339 points. NASDAQ's up 223. The S&P's up 43. Oil flat at $40 a barrel. I was talking last week, is that going to be enough to save the shale industry? We'll have to see on that one. Um, gold is up about 3 bucks to $1,792.80. And silver, let's see what's silver doing. Silver is up 23 cents a day at eighteen fifty-five. Once again, Anytime silver is under 20 bucks, buy it. Okay, stack that silver. So today is National Fried Chicken Day. So uh, that's huge where I come from. I, I live in Maryland, the Delmarva Peninsula. Everything in our economy supports the fried chicken or just chicken industry, the poultry industry. And in fact, during the pandemic, there was such a drop in demand that the birds were getting too big and the birds could not fit into the processing machines and they had to just kill all the chickens. It was such a waste. I saw a, uh, an article this weekend about how there's like a, a million pound pile of potatoes out in Idaho that they can't get to market. That's insane. I mean, these supply chains are really affected. And we talk about supply and demand. Once again, that unencumbered marketplace. You know what? Everybody just needs to drive to Idaho and go get their potatoes for the year and help these farmers out because they're hurting, you know. So, uh, gosh, I had six pages of notes about this economic stuff. Today. We didn't get through half of it. Uh, so I guess we'll continue on that tomorrow. Uh, just this day in history, there was a real good one here. In 1835, John Marshall, the third chief justice of the Supreme Court, died at the age of 79. Two days later, while tolling in his honor in Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell cracks. I did not know that. And I'm a history teacher. I, that's pretty cool. Um, not that John Marshall died, but it's, it's interesting that the Liberty Bell cracked uh, in, in his honor. So uh, this whole supply and demand stuff, ladies and gentlemen, when we talk about equilibrium, think about if we, if we replace Kit Kat bar with uh, Chevrolet or Cadillac Escalade. Okay, if a Cadillac Escalade is ninety thousand dollars, at what point do you not buy? Okay, at what point does that Escalade have to come down to to the point where you're in and where supply meets demand, where you have a willing buyer and a willing seller, and they meet, and we have equilibrium? That is the the key issue here now in this economy, because can you make it as a restaurant owner? at 25% capacity or 45% capacity, can you do it? I mean, you have to look at those bottom line numbers and, you know, where, what do, do I have to charge more to make up for the lack of capacity? That is, do I keep all my labor? What do I do? I mean, that's, that's critical that everybody has to think about this stuff. And, and, you know, I just, also, I heard today on the radio, local local governments are not accepting cash to pay your taxes they don't want you dirty peasant to come into their offices and spend that dirty cash there's a whole war on cash that we're dealing with it's quite a mess that that we have right here um so i wanted to get into fdic and bailouts and all that stuff i think we'll get into that tomorrow because there's just so much more that we can get into does so it think about this ladies and gentlemen two percent inflation that the federal reserve kicks in every year they bake it into the cake so after 10 years, let's say after five years, that's 10% less buying power. So you go to Walmart and your, or your grocery store, whatever, where you go, and you want to buy bacon. And let's say two or three years ago, bacon was $3 a pound, and now it's 5 to $6 a pound. That bacon hasn't gotten any better. It's the fact that, that that's why they're charging more. No, it's the same bacon, same amount, 
Okay, it's just that your money has less value. It takes more of those fraudulent reserve notes in your wallet to buy them. That's loss of buying power, ladies and gentlemen. That's why you need to buy gold and silver. It does retain its value. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay with us, Patriot Radio News Hour. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks for listening in. See you tomorrow. <laughs>